joy to the world. The Lord has come. For me, it's always a joy to visit the little town of Bethlehem, where the Shekinah glory of God converged with the shepherd's fields, where the heavenly army of angels sang, announcing the Savior and his birthplace. It's often said that Jesus is the reason for the season. And to the point, one of the greatest reasons for the season is having the opportunity to share Bible prophecies that were uniquely fulfilled at the Savior's birth. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. The little town of Bethlehem is only about four or five miles to the south of Jerusalem. It's actually more of a suburb these days as the Israeli capital has grown and expanded. Pilgrims from all over the world visit Manger Square, where behind me is the ancient church in the Nativity. Pilgrims also worship in the surrounding picturesque fields and churches where shepherds still keep their flocks and where one might imagine a scene of Jesus' ancestor, King David, who began life as a humble shepherd boy. Visitors can explore the hillside caves, and some of these grottos have been consecrated as chapels, helping us to envision the humble nativity scene. Now, surely one of the real reasons for the season is an opportunity to explore the many Bible prophecies that were uniquely fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. According to Micah 5.2, the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. That verse declares, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, even from eternity. That one prophecy eliminates all other cities and towns in the world as Messiah's birthplace. Recently, I've been sharing about the two faces of the Messiah in the Bible, how on the one hand, there are two seemingly contradictory portraits of God's anointed king in the Hebrew scriptures, one a suffering servant and the other a conquering king of the house of David. The prophet Daniel foresaw the Messiah coming to earth on clouds of glory. Yet, the prophet Micah announced that the Messiah would be born in the little town of Bethlehem, implying humble and harsh beginnings. These facts don't really contradict each other. In fact, Jesus fulfills both portraits. First, he came as the Isaiah chapter 53 suffering servant born in the stable in Bethlehem to serve mankind as the Lamb of God. But yet, he's also the king descended from David, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, whose kingdom will never end. And at his second coming, the Lord will rule the world from Jerusalem, sitting upon the ancestral throne of his father David. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, starting with verse 24, there is an exact timeline for when the Messiah would appear, but also reporting that he would be killed. 
not as an accident, but he would be cut off according to the eternal purposes of God to redeem us from sin. Now, when we add together all of the prophecies concerning Messiah's first and second comings, only Jesus, it turns out, uniquely fulfills the Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. As Galatians 4.4 so beautifully states, In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that He could adopt us as His very own children. And as a result, in our spirits we cry, Abba, Father. Yeshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus, which means God is salvation. Well, the so-called Christmas holiday is controversial for a number of reasons, including, of course, commercialism. But believers who choose to shun or to ignore Christmas point to the fact that the Bible does not state the date of Messiah's birth. They also point out that it couldn't have been wintertime when Jesus was born because the Gospels state that shepherds were abiding outside watching over their flocks. In midwinter, the sheep would not have been kept outside overnight. In fact, some Bible scholars believe that Jesus was born in late September during the Feast of Tabernacles, based largely upon a clue concerning the timing of the birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. You see, we know from the Gospel of Luke that John's mother, Elizabeth, was six months ahead of Mary's pregnancy. John's father, Zechariah, was a temple priest. And in Luke chapter 1, when it was Zechariah's time to serve in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him by the temple altar of incense. And Gabriel announced that Zechariah's elderly wife, Elizabeth, would conceive a son. And after the announcement, Elizabeth did indeed conceive John the Baptist, just as the angel had said, despite Zechariah's unholy skepticism. Then, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel visited the Virgin Mary in Nazareth to announce that she would miraculously conceive the Messiah. And to strengthen Mary's faith, Gabriel informed her that nothing is impossible with God because even her elderly cousin Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Now, no detail is in the Bible by accident. And in Luke 1.5, we are informed of an important fact that Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. The divisions of the priests were set up by King David himself. And, assuming that Elizabeth conceived her child shortly after Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah in the order of Abijah, her sixth month of pregnancy would be approximately in the month of December. That means Jesus, the light of the world, would have been conceived in Mary's womb in December perhaps during the Festival of Light, called Hanukkah. And consequently, he would have been born nine months later in September during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And John 1.14 may also give us an additional clue about his birth during tabernacles because that verse says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Mary believed the angel Gabriel, but she hurried to visit her cousin Elizabeth to see for herself the miracle of Elizabeth's pregnancy in her old age. And as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb and Elizabeth exclaimed in a loud voice to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Well, Elizabeth's prophecy was a marvelous confirmation to Mary. So Mary, very relieved, just burst out in gratitude, prophesying what's known today as the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God my Savior. Henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Well, the two women no doubt enjoyed days of intimate fellowship. They must have discussed the supernatural pregnancy of Sarah and Abraham. They surely discussed Hannah who had prayed for a child and whose prayer was the model for Mary's Magnificat. Now, Luke chapter 2 continues with the fact that the emperor, Caesar Augustus, declared a census in those days requiring citizens to register in their hometown. Both Mary and Joseph hailed from the house of David in Bethlehem, but at the time they were living 90 miles north in Nazareth. So for days they traveled by foot and donkey to reach Bethlehem in the third trimester of Mary's pregnancy. Along that arduous journey, they might have stopped in ancient Shiloh, where God's Ark of the Covenant had resided for 369 years and where Hannah had prayed fervently for her son Samuel. The two birth narratives of Jesus recorded in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew confirm that the prophecies of Messiah culminated in his unique birth. Mary wrapped the baby Jesus in swaddling cloths. Many cultures still practice swaddling today. The cloths are used to wrap an infant tightly. Swaddling helps the baby to transition from the womb's snug environment to the outside world. When our son Daniel was born in Israel, the hospital nurses wrapped him up in swaddling bands like a little mummy. I wasn't expecting to see that. And I was so surprised nearly 2,000 years later that the Israelis were still swaddling babies, just like in Bible days. It was a precious sight to behold. Swaddling is also proven to help infants to sleep better, to prevent them from scratching themselves, and to reduce the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. The New Testament passage that refers to the swaddling cloths is Luke 2, 7. It records that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room available in Bethlehem's inn. There are many theories about St. Luke's mention of the swaddling cloths, a practice that certainly illustrated the tender care of Jesus' mother. Luke 2.12 tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds at night and announced 
that the sign identifying the Messiah would be a baby wrapped in cloths, like apparently the sacrificial lambs were wrapped. Fascinating that some scholars speculate that Mary may have been given priestly swaddling bands from her cousin Elizabeth, whose husband had served in the temple. Apparently, when the priests finished serving their turn in the holiest place, they sometimes cut their linen garments into strips to be given as a gift to a potential newborn king. Wearing these distinctive swaddling cloths could have been a sign that the infant was indeed descended from the royal line of David. Elizabeth was a prophetess, and she knew in her heart that Mary was the mother of Emmanuel. That's a messianic title from Isaiah 7:14, meaning God with us. So by the spirit of revelation, Elizabeth would have known that Mary's son was deserving to wear priestly swaddling cloths. Both Mary and her husband Joseph belonged, after all, to the house of David. Furthermore, Bible scholars point to a biblical prophecy indicating that the Messiah would be revealed from the tower of the flock connected with the town of Bethlehem, southeast of Jerusalem. Listen to Micah 4, 8. And thou, O tower of Eder, fort of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Also concerning Messiah, Micah 5.4 mentions a shepherd's theme. Micah 5.4 says, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell securely, and he will be great to the ends of the earth. The meaning of this prophecy is that King Messiah will be the good shepherd, guiding and defending his flock. And it's no coincidence that Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. And I believe Micah 5.4 is also a prophecy of the worldwide millennial rule of the Messiah when the children of Israel will finally dwell securely in peace in their own land. At this point, it's important to mention a Jewish Christian Bible scholar who lived in the 19th century, Alfred Edersheim. Edersheim wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. According to Edersheim, sacrificial lambs were raised in the Bethlehem Hills only about four miles as the crow flies from the temple in Jerusalem. Edersheim wrote that a watchtower was built in the vicinity of Bethlehem to protect the temple flocks. In Hebrew, the name of this tower was Migdal Eder, meaning the tower of the flock. Mishnah sources indicate that animals in the fields within a certain distance from the Migdal Eder were used as sacrificial animals in the temple. Lambs destined to become temple sacrifices, were born in a birthing room on the tower's ground floor. And during lambing season, specially trained shepherds would decide which lambs qualified to be sacrificial, because according to strict Torah specifications, sacrificial animals had to be born without spot or blemish. And because little lambs are frisky creatures, the perfect lambs were wrapped with swaddling cloths 
to protect them from injuries. But what about the other sign? The shepherds were also told they would find the swaddled infant in a manger, an animal trough. That would be an incredible sign to the shepherds who no doubt expected a king, a baby wrapped in royal priestly bands, but sleeping in an animal trough amongst smelly animals in a stable? Why wasn't the royal Messiah born in a palace fit for a king, God's only son? Why would a food manger be his bed? God's son made his advent on earth in the most humble circumstances as a sign that he's approachable and accessible to everybody. No palace gates or palace guards barred the way to him. The name Bethlehem means house of bread and Jesus, the bread of life, slept in a feeding trough. As believers, are we not commanded to feed on him? Well, there's so much to ponder in the narrative of Jesus's birth. That's why I like the way the holiday Christmas is translated in modern Hebrew. Christmas is called the holiday of the birth in Hebrew. And for sure, the Lord's birth was the birth of births. Because of the vast crowds that had converged on Bethlehem, there was no room at the end for Mary and Joseph. The end most likely featured a lower floor that served as a nighttime shelter for the animals. We're given no details except there was no vacancy. But this we do know from both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. The temple shepherds must search for a stable and a manger near the Tower of Eder. The shepherds' fields where the Shekinah glory of God appeared are located in a suburb of Bethlehem that's called today Beit Sahor, meaning House of the Watchers. That's so appropriate. A chapel in Beit Sahor was designed to resemble a shepherd's tent, and a restaurant in Beit Sahur is called the Tower, reminiscent of Migdal Eder. Now in Luke chapter 2, when the angel Gabriel visited Mary, he said, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David. When will that last part of the prophecy be fully fulfilled? When will Jesus be given the throne of his father David as Gabriel promised? Well, I believe it will be at the Lord's second coming. Speaking of the Lord's future kingdom, Gabriel also told Mary that her son will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, according to Genesis 49.10, the Messiah had to be descended from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is described in Revelation 5.5 as the lion of the tribe of Judah. In order to fulfill these prophecies at both his first and second comings, Jesus had to qualify legally. And that's why the Gospels of Matthew and Luke carefully and dutifully trace his genealogy. Interesting that the Jewish authorities in Jesus' day never questioned or disputed the Lord's title as the son of David. That was an established fact. 
Also, essentially, according to Isaiah 7:14, the Messiah must be born of a virgin. Saint Luke, who happened to be a physician, must have at some point interviewed Mary as a physician because it's interesting that Luke included her testimony in his gospel that she was a virgin when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and God became incarnate in her womb. Well, there are many other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his birth, including Isaiah chapter 11, which foretold that nations will seek the counsel of the descendant of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the ancestor of Jesus. Isaiah 11 is all about the descendant of Jesse. And the chapter begins saying, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. What does this mean? Bible commentaries explain that a shoot reappearing on a stump describes the recuperative energies of Israel. God has allowed Israel to be leveled to the ground in the past, but Israel and her Messiah cannot be destroyed. Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected, and the nation state of Israel has also been resurrected. From Jesse's ancient worn tree trunk, a shoot will sprout forth and a green branch will burst forth from its roots. Therefore, from the stock of David, the coming deliverer arose. Then, speaking of great David's greater son, the Isaiah prophecy continues by saying, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 11 goes on to prophesy concerning Messiah. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will seek him. Amen. Well, every year the debate continues. Should believers celebrate Christmas or not? An argument against celebrating Christmas is that its origins are pagan. For example, mistletoe, holly, and yule logs are certainly elements of pagan worship. But there are also many Christmas traditions associated with truths in the Bible concerning the birth narrative of the Savior. For example, bells ring out to remember the joyous singing by the angel choir announcing the Savior's birth. Nativity sets conveniently illustrate the story to children how the servant king was born in a stable amongst God's animal kingdom, but how even bejeweled kings from the Orient visited him to pay homage. Candles are lit to remind us that Jesus was born as the light of the world. And tying in with that, Bible scholars say Jesus was most likely conceived during the December Festival of Lights, also known as the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. Star decorations are strung up on malls or over city streets, and these are legitimate biblical symbols reminding us of the mysterious star that led the Magi to the newborn king. Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were presented by the wise men to Jesus, who was, after all, God's greatest gift to mankind. But we have to ask, 
What about Christmas trees? Aren't they pagan? Well, Jeremiah 10.3 is a verse often cited as evidence against that custom. That verse forbids cutting down trees to carve them into wooden idols. For what purpose? For the purpose, of course, of bowing down to worship idols. It's easy to take these verses out of context to condemn all Christmas decorations. But I've never worshipped a Christmas tree, have you? Because Bible believers use the occasion to proclaim Jesus as the reason for the season, the holiday is especially useful among nations that have not known the gospel. A heartwarming example is a Muslim family that regularly attended our gospel outreaches in Jerusalem. They were the only family in their village to put up a Christmas tree. I wouldn't dare condemn them for perpetuating what some call a pagan practice because they were being very bold in their own way to recognize Jesus in their home. By having a Christmas tree, this Muslim couple was saying to their children and also to their neighbors that they really did believe in Jesus. The wife told me it was her family's way of honoring Jesus and identifying as Muslim background believers in the Savior. Think about that and please don't condemn their level of faith. We've also known plenty of Jewish people who love Christmas trees and who enjoy the Christmas holiday. So in our ministry, we use Christmas as an opportunity to share the good news. Many times we've held festival meals in Bethlehem to preach the gospel, to pray for the sick, and to strengthen the diminishing Christian community. The Roman emperor would declare a census, requiring Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem, Thus God ensured that the Messiah was born in the city of David. The shepherds cared for a flock of animals that would be used as sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple. The baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The birth of Messiah was declared by a great company of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace goodwill towards men. In the manger, a small baby wrapped in priestly swaddling cloths was destined to become our high priest, while the entire night sky was lit up by angelic beings. Today, whether or not you celebrate the Christmas holiday, what's important is that you carefully consider the claims of Jesus upon your heart as Savior and Lord. I love the Christmas carol that says, you left your throne and your kingly crown when you came to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home, there was found no room for your nativity. And then the chorus goes, Oh, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. So I urge you to make room in your heart for the Savior of the world and to call upon his name and be saved. We also invite you to stay in contact with us on the social media or at our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our free color magazine, Exploits. A reminder also that our Jerusalem Channel app is available free to download from your app store. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark saying Maranatha Shalom 
and happy Christmas.